0: Some of our people thought that was more important. The world's hype was more important than church. And I pray that God blesses your socks off this week because you decided that it wasn't more important than church. And when you see somebody who is not here tonight, who is home watching a game, and say, well, I guess you're so stupid you can't work a VCR. And so you can bless them that way. But I was thinking, you know, the world, they're interviewing Celine Dion and Santana and Shania Twain and all these kind of people. There's not one person singing in San Diego today that God says yes. But God said yes to what we did tonight. I don't know what anybody else is doing. I don't know what songs they're singing. They make a lot of money singing them. But I want to tell you something. The angels don't join in with their songs. They join in with ours. They rejoice with us, and they honor the living Christ with us. And I tell you, I'd rather sing the songs of Zion than sing the songs that won't last beyond a few weeks on the top 40, because they are wonderful songs. I talked to Wayne Watson this afternoon, and I told him we had sung Glorify Your Name. And, and uh, he and I were talking a little bit, of it, and he said, you know, he said, it took me five years to write that song. It just sounds so simple, doesn't it? But he said, you know, God wouldn't let that song out of my heart. He said, I just kept working on it, working on it. He said, it took me five years, and it was a real encouragement uh, to him. And, and I, I just am, uh, I, I don't know, something about that song. I, I said, you know, something, I saw people this morning, and it was like the first time you heard "Hallelujah" or something. You know, people just kind of went, boy, I can connect with that. And I said, Wayne, you're driving me crazy, man. I said, I'm going to start calling you every morning because every morning I'm waking up with that song on my mind and it's about to drive me nuts because I can't think of anything else. And, and, uh, but anyway, I was just sharing that with you. It's free, it's cheap, didn't cost you anything, but uh, probably a commercial at the Super Bowl rerun. So Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, which means it was only one mile. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphas and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his disciples. And we know that Jesus appeared for 40 days after the resurrection. And then at the ascension, it was 10 days before Pentecost. But they did not know how long they were supposed to wait. They just knew they were supposed to wait. And I want to submit to you that waiting time is is never wasted time. And at times when we feel like we need to be busy, sometimes God wants us to wait. Many of you have prayed for George Harris over the last few weeks, and George was in a serious motorcycle accident, actually hit without a full mask on, and in a motorcycle, he hit a guardrail with his face. And they had to do two orbital implants. He's got like 90 screws in his face. Uh, he had to have, I don't know, eight hours worth of surgery, and it's a miracle that he didn't break his neck. And I got an email from him yesterday. And he said, you know, he said, in all this time, I haven't been able to read because I've had stuff in my eyes trying to keep my eyes from, from me losing my eyes. He said, all I've been able to do is pray. And he said, the medicine they've got me on for pain, I can't sleep at night. So he said, from one o'clock to two o'clock in the morning, every morning, I've prayed for you and I've prayed for Sherwood Baptist Church. And he said, I want to tell you, some of the sweetest time I've ever had with the Lord. He said, for me to have to go through this so that I have to sit by myself and literally pray for three or four hours every night just before the Lord. And he said, the Lord has told me, George, for the rest of your life, no more engagements, only assignments. You just go where I tell you to go. And you do what I tell you to do. So I appreciated him doing that. But, you know, I thought about uh, my sabbatical. It was hard for me to slow down. I mean, the first two weeks, I'm just, you know, I got to do something. I mean, about the time I got slowed down, I had to come back. You know, I, I, I just, I could, I'm so geared. Now, some of you don't understand that. Some of you can sleep in a train wreck. But, you know, but I, I am so geared that it's just hard for me to sit back and wait. Because my nature is, if I'm not doing something, I must not be being used of God. And I, it took me literally a month just to get back and settle down and listen and think like I needed to. And to kind of look at life and where I was and what God wanted to do with me and what He wanted to do with my life and my ministry. and Just kind of get it all in a perspective. But I had to slow down to do that. I was so busy, God was taking a number to try to speak to me. you know, And I just needed to just wait a little bit. Now, we don't know what all they did in those 10 days while they were waiting, but we do know these things, and there are four things that they did. Number one, they got their marching orders. Verses 6 through 8, Jesus gave them their assignment, their marching orders. In verses 9 through 12, they witnessed the ascension. I've been to the Mount of Ascension. There's a footprint there. Any, Any of you ever been to the Mount of Ascension? There's a footprint. Actually, it looks like a Nike tennis shoe footprint. And they got this little box around it. And they say, this is the footprint of Jesus. I'm going, oh, yeah, right. Of course, that was the same guy who told me I could ride the same donkey Jesus rode for one American dollar. Uh, <laughs> honest to goodness, he did. He was, standing, he was standing right outside the Mount of Ascension. Ride the same donkey Jesus rode, one American dollar. Well, I don't believe that's the footprint of Jesus, but it is the mount from which He ascended, and they witnessed that. They gathered to pray in verses 13 and 14. And then in verses 21 through 26, they replaced Judas, which has always been a passage of controversy, and we'll talk about that before we get to the end tonight. Now, before we get into the, to the heart of the message, I, I want to give you a little parallel here. Uh, the book of Joshua and the book of Acts are both transitional books. They're bridge books. Uh, Acts is the Joshua and Joshua is the Acts of the Bible. Uh, They they have parallels, and some of them are subtle but but they have parallels and for instance uh, both of them are bridges into new experiences with God. In Joshua you have the bridge experience from the wilderness across the Jordan into the abundant life of Canaan and and going into the promised land. In Acts, you have the bridge from Jesus being with the disciples to the Holy Spirit being in the disciples. In the book of Joshua, you find a command that they are to wait before they go into the land. And they're to consecrate themselves for tomorrow the Lord will do great things among you. In the book of Acts, you see that they're to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. In the book of Joshua, they are to wait so they can take the land. In the book of Acts, they're to wait so they can receive power. So there are a lot of similarities between those books, but the thing that you need to understand is that when God tells you to wait, there's a reason for it. And for me, when God tells me to wait, one of the things He wants me to do is to measure my effectiveness. Not by my peers, not by public opinion, Uh, not by popularity, but to measure my effectiveness by the Scripture and by what God has said in His Word. And, and, uh, you know, the only audience I have to answer to is an audience of one. I will not stand before this entire church and give an account one day, but I will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and give an account. So I have an audience of one that I have to answer to. And so when I wait... When I get still, I have to measure my effectiveness and what God has called me to do, and I can discover some things. And so, let me give you some ideas uh, tonight, if I could, out of Acts 1 about how we measure our effectiveness. First of all, we measure it by how we stack up to Acts 1 8. We measure it by how we stack up to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, let's go back and read that again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We measure it by how we stack up to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, it's been attributed to A.W. Tozer. It's also been attributed to Havner. It's been said that A.W. Tozer stole this quote from Vance Havner, and uh, really I don't know who had it first, But uh, Tozer is the one most credited with saying, if the Holy Spirit withdrew from the average church, the church would never know it. They'd just keep doing business as usual. Something along those lines. But you get the gist of it. Most churches, quite honestly, operate without the Holy Spirit. They've got their programs and their plans and their methods and their stuff, and they they just move on without the Holy Spirit. But if you want to measure the effectiveness of the church, measure if it has the power of the Spirit. If you want to measure the effectiveness of your life, measure if it has the power of the Spirit. Now, first of all, God's power is available to everybody. It's available to everybody. Not just the elite, not just a few, but to everybody. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. And you didn't just get 20% of Him and somebody got 80% of Him. You got all of the Holy Spirit inside of you. The only battle that is going on is whether the Holy Spirit has all of you. But you got every bit of the Holy Spirit when you were saved. It's available to everybody. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How are we going to do that? In His power. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought about, you know, most Christians are like Barney Fife. We got a gun and we got a badge, but we don't know where the bullet is. And we always are messing up. You know, Barney, you know, the whole world had to fix the things that Barney messed up. You know, Barney always had a plan. He always had an idea. He always had a scheme. You know, I, I love the episode where he dressed up like the woman statue mannequin in the department store. You remember that one? That Boy, he's a, he made an ugly woman. I just got to take this. An ugly woman. Uh, but, you know, Barney was always messing up. I mean, he had everything that he was supposed to have to function, but he didn't know how to use it. And here was Andy Taylor. Andy never, sometimes he has his badge only in the episodes, sometimes he doesn't. Never wore a gun, didn't need to, because when Andy spoke, he had something to back it up. You know what the church looks like to the world? Barney Fife. We look like we got all the stuff, but they want to know where's the power and where's the authority that backs it up. Where's the dynamic in our lives? You see, we laugh at Barney Fife because he was all talk and no action. But we admire Andy Taylor, Sheriff Andy Taylor, because when Andy spoke, he carried out what he said he was going to do. He lived up to what he said. He lived up to his office. And I think the world is looking for us to find out Do we have all the signs and the symbols, or do we really have the power and the authority? The authority and the power has been given to all of us. Secondly, God's power resides within. Now, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit being on a place and in a place, but the ultimate reality is God's power resides within you through the Holy Spirit. Anything God does in the church, He does in His Spirit. There's no power if we're not surrendered. There's no power if we're disobedient. There's no power if we try to add something to the Holy Spirit and help the Holy Spirit out. The Holy Spirit doesn't need any help. Do we understand that? I mean, this way means yes, this way. The Holy Spirit doesn't need our help. He just needs us to be available to Him and let His power in our lives work itself out. He's got more power in our tanks than we're letting Him run with. He he doesn't need my help. In fact, most of the time, I'm in His way. And I have to get out of His way and surrender to Him and obey Him so He can do in my life and through my life what He wants to do. Thirdly, God's power demands action. You're going to see around the church in uh, a few weeks some different phrases painted in places. One will say, as you go make disciples. You'll see some signs on the parking lot that say you are now entering the mission field as you exit the property. Because the power is not just for us to come to church and have church. The power is for us to share what God has done for us in Christ. And and we can talk about everything in the world. I mean, I've never met a grandparent that didn't want to talk about their grandkids, good or bad you know, that didn't have pictures. Have you ever met a grandparent that didn't have a picture of their grandchildren? And have you ever heard a grandparent say, isn't that the most precious baby you've ever seen in your life? Now you want to get a fight going, get five grandmas together all with their pictures, talking about who's the prettiest. You know, I've never met an athlete that didn't want to talk about athletics. I've never met people that didn't want to talk about things they were interested in and passionate about. But somehow when we get to Christ, we get tight-lipped and nervous. And we start saying, well, I'm just not extroverted. I just can't. Listen, we talk about what we're passionate about. We talk about what has our heart. We talk about what has our interest. We talk about what's captured our attention. And this power is available to us, but this power demands action and says, we are witnesses or martyrs is the word. We die to our agenda. In Jerusalem, listen to where they were witnesses. In Jerusalem, where they had been absolute failures. In Judea, tough place. Judea is tough, rocky ground. You don't want to go there with dress shoes on. I mean, it's tough ground. In Samaria the place where prejudice abound. And in all of those places, he said, as you go, do something about what you're going with. Say something about it. Be my witnesses. Now, we measure it by how we stack up to Acts 1.8. We measure it by our view of where the world is headed. Verse 11. We measure it by our view of where the world is headed. He says, they also said, this is the angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now the early church lived with a spirit of expectancy. They believed the Lord was going to come back quickly. Uh, They believed it was going to be in their lifetime. Now, now Paul had to rebuke a church because they said, you know, the Lord's coming back. It's going to be wonderful. Jesus is coming. He's going to take us up. So shall we ever be with the Lord? And they just quit working. They, They just quit their jobs. They quit everything. And Paul said, listen, you don't work, you don't eat. Go back to work. There's a difference between living with a spirit of expectancy and not doing anything because Jesus is coming back. You see, there's a responsibility to come. Jesus promised he would come back. Remember what he said? Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, when's the only time you ever hear that verse? Funeral. Jesus didn't say that at a funeral. He said that in the context of a coming cross and a coming spirit. He said, don't get uptight. Don't be anxious. I'm about to go to the cross, but if I don't go to the cross, the Spirit can't come, so don't be uptight. Don't let your heart be troubled. He's telling us that He is going to prepare a place for us, but more than that, these angels are saying to us He's going to come back in the same way. Just as you've seen Him go up, He's going to come down. Paul tells us we'll meet Him in the air, those of us who are alive and remain. We're to respond accordingly. Now, I get interested in people and... uh, I'm not going to go as far tonight as I want to go, but I'm going to, I'm going to go out a little bit on this. Pe- people who are possessed by prophecy are amusing to me. You know, you see some preacher on TV and he's got this chart of Babylon up behind him. You know, and he's the, the, the Babylon and you trace it through here and everything else. You know. I don't care if you got every chart ever made. I don't care if you've got a dispensational chart. I don't care if you have a Schofield Bible. What I want to know is, has that burdened you that when Jesus comes, there are going to be people who are lost? You see, we want to study, the, we want to study the, the prophecy, and we especially like to read fiction. I don't need to read fiction. I know what the Bible says. The Bible says there's coming a day when in one millionth of a second, Jesus is going to come back, and it's over. It may be in my lifetime. It may be a million years from now. I don't know when it's going to be, but I know this. Christ is coming back. And I am supposed to to respond accordingly. I don't get caught up in times and in charts. I don't care whether you're a premillennialist, a post, or an ah. You know what? It doesn't matter what you are. God's going to do it His way. I know people that won't have fellowship with somebody else if they're not premillennial. You know, I can't have any fellowship with you. You don't believe believe in a pre-trib rapture. Hey, what I believe about when the rapture is going to take place has not one bit of influence in heaven. Only God the Father knows when it's going to take place. And all the speculation and talking, you know, what are we going to do? What are you going to do if you miss the rapture? Hey, what are you going to do if you die before the rapture comes? You know, you, you see books, you know, Jesus is going to come back in September of 1988. Well, you know for sure he's not going to come back then. Because the scripture says no man knows the day or the hour. So anytime anybody puts a label on it and says Jesus is going to come back, people all at the millennium. People, Jesus is coming back, it's a millennium, it's 2,000 years, perfect time for Jesus. He's not coming back. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus wasn't coming back because everybody thought he was. At a day and an hour that you know not. But he did say one thing. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. Now you know what it was like in the days of Noah? Listen, people were eating and drinking and marrying and partying and having festivities and going about their business and ignoring God. Could be today could be long after we're gone. I love what Stuart Briscoe said. He says, I don't believe God gave obscure prophecies so we could sit in holy huddles trying to make charts, dotting eyes and arguing points. That's a good word. Now here's what I believe in my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. This is what I believe is the purpose of prophecy. It's twofold. You want to know why we have prophecy and you know if somebody's reading you know the left behind series that's fine Uh, you know Tim LaHaye's made 70 million dollars off of you but uh, he hasn't shared any of it with me yet Uh, probably won't if he ever gets this message but uh, first purpose of prophecy is to encourage you to holy living purpose of prophecy is not for us to figure out dates and charts the purpose of prophecy is I am to live a life in light of the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back. Does that make sense? I mean, I want to live prepared for His coming. I do not want to be, as the Scripture says, ashamed at His coming. And so I'm to live a life, a holy life, in light of His return. Secondly, it should stir me to share my faith. It should stir me to share my faith. Because there is coming a day... When God's going to come back. And it's all going to be over. And if that is a truth, and it is, regardless of where you're pre, post, or ah, or whatever you are in between, or however much you've read about prophecy, take your sponge and squeeze it out on a world that needs to hear that Jesus is coming back. And one day, every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl is going to have to answer for what they did with Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of it to give us a sense of urgency. Well, I told you that's as far as I'm going to go, so that's as far as I'm going to go. Number three, we measure our effectiveness by prayer, verses 13 and 14. Jesus had gone from their sight. He came in the fullness of time. He died when His hour has come. He arose according to the Scriptures on the third day. He ascended into heaven to begin a priestly work of intercession. And He left us here to intercede, others Spurgeon said I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this the measure of the intensity of your prayer the measure of the intensity of your prayer someone has defined prayer as my helplessness leaning on God's omnipotence my helplessness, leaning on God's omnipotence. Now we all know those acrostics for prayer: Acts, uh, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. But can I give you what I think are the things behind uh, the the methods of prayer, if you will, the, the different ways we're supposed to pray? And you know, can I? I'm gonna chase another real rabbit, real quick. Okay. I really don't care, and I don't think God cares if you start with adoration or confession or so. Just pray. Just pray. You know, well, okay, now, I've done my adoration now, let I see what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do confession. Okay, now, that, now I'm supposed to do thanksgiving. Listen, just talk to God. You know, when my kids talk to me, they don't walk into the room and go, oh, great and mighty Father who gave birth to us, who brought us into this world by your omnipotent being, who has blessed us with clothing and food, And has paid for our education so that we might be blessed. And has provided a car for us which we might drive. You who are worthy because you pay the insurance for teenager drivers. You know what they do? They come and say, Dad, I need ten bucks. And they just cut to the chase. They don't have to convince me of anything. And sometimes we pray like we're trying to convince God of something. And we we worry so much about the system that we forget that prayer is a conversation with our Heavenly Father. A conversation. It's a dialogue. God talks to you, you talk to God. So let me give you what I think are the backgrounds, four aspects that you need kind of behind your prayer life. Number one is brokenness. Without Him, you can do nothing. That's why you pray. Because apart from God, you can't do anything. You can't change any situation. Number two is anticipation. Anticipation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever God puts in my path, I can do it because God has already provided within me the resources to strengthen me for the task that He's given me. Number three is faith. What God says, He will do. And number four is obedience, what He says I will do. Faith is what God says He will do. Obedience is what God says I will do. And any serious work of God is birthed in prayer. That's why they went and that's why they waited. And what were they waiting for? They were waiting for what they were praying for for the Spirit to come, for power to come. They were laying hold of God in prayer and asking God to send down what He had promised. Everything starts in prayer. Every revival in history has been birthed in a prayer meeting. Now, before I became a pastor, I served in seven states. In youth ministry, you move around a lot in youth ministry because you're always dodging bullets. So, you know, I I served in seven states. Can I tell you that only one church in those seven states had an intercessory prayer ministry? Uh, We we had a visitation night. We had a prayer meeting, the worst attended meeting of the week. You know, we had events, we had GAs and RAs and mission groups and everything. We had had all the stuff that a church is supposed to have, but not one had an intercessory prayer ministry until the last one I served before I became a pastor. Why is it that we neglect to do the very thing that the disciples wanted Jesus to teach them? People want to learn this and want to learn that, but until we learn how to pray... We'll never learn how to appropriate it in the way that God wants us to appropriate it and take it through the grid of taking it before God in prayer. They prayed continually. It means that they were constantly diligent. Was not passive. Now, that word continually in this verse is used by Luke in two other ways. In chapter 2 and verse 42, he uses it of the new believers after Pentecost who continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So now, watch this pattern here. They're continually in prayer. Not passive, they're actively involved in prayer in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the new believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. That's why we disciple new believers. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, the apostles were determined to continually devote themselves to prayer and the preaching of the word, and that's why they selected deacons. So that they could continue to do what they had started doing in Acts chapter 1. They were being distracted. They were, their time was being divided, and so they had to continually do that, so they selected deacons. And notice it says, "All with one mind." Ten times in, in the book of Acts, and he uses Luke uses this emphasis on all in one mind, of unity of mind and unity of purpose. Listen, folks, the basis of unity in a church is prayer. It's not everybody being a Democrat or everybody being a Republican or everybody being black or everybody being white or everybody being uh, middle class or upper class. Or the basis of unity in a church is not sociological. It's prayer. We find our unity at the foot of the cross. The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy at the foot of the cross. There are no titles at the foot of the cross. We lay aside our differences because at the cross, God bridged the gap between all of our differences. And He made us, not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, black or white, rich or poor, but all one in Christ. That's the basis for our unity. Now, I found something here, and the 120 were gathered. Look at this group. There were 11 apostles, the brothers of Jesus, who had rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry. Apparently, they had gotten saved after after the resurrection. Those who were recently converted. And I want you to notice something. I'm not going to try to be offensive here at all. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this is what I say to Catholic friends who think that they need to pray to Mary. The disciples didn't. They didn't get in that room and go, Mary, you're the mother of Jesus. What should we do? There's no indication that Mary ever spoke, taught, led, made a decision, or gave them advice. They did not go to Mary, the mother of Jesus, for advice. And by the way, the Catholic Church has just officially proclaimed that Mary is a co-redeemer with Christ. That is blasphemy. There is no co-redeemer. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear on that. And somebody can pray to Mary and go to hell. Did you notice they never, ever consulted Mary about what to do? Why? She was just one of many. The only reason that's included in there is to distinguish her from the other Mary the sister of Martha, to let you know which Mary was there. I find that incredibly interesting because a whole system of religion has been built on exalting Mary. But listen, Mary never exalted herself. She humbled herself before the child that she had given birth to who was her Lord and Savior. She didn't walk up to Him and say, Now, son, you need to act a certain way. You need to do a certain thing. No, Mary was one of 120, just one of 120, just like everybody else. Listen, folks, understand something, and you can be nice and you can be sweet about this, but God shares His glory with no one. Not even the woman chosen above all women to give birth to the Son of God. He shares His glory with nobody. He gets it all. Lastly, we measure our effectiveness by our commitment to the Word, verses 15 through 26. Verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, I want you to see that phrase, the scripture had to be fulfilled. In a prayer environment, what happened? Simon Peter, uneducated, untrained, but he studied the scriptures. Simon Peter went back to what the Scripture said. And said, you know what, Jesus, and now that we are on this side of it, Judas was not a surprise. God was not caught off guard. Judas was doing what his, his worldview said, and that is that his view of the world and his view of life was that the Messiah had to be a political deliverer. And so he was trying to play Jesus into a position where Jesus would have to step up and take over. He he misunderstood the references in the Old Testament about Messiah's first coming and His second coming. He got the two confused. And so Peter says, you know, this is what the Scripture said, that, that it is fulfilled Scripture. And he quotes two verses, Psalm 69 and verse 25. And Psalm 109 in verse 8. And he says, we've not been caught off guard. We've not been surprised. This is what had to happen. The scripture had to be fulfilled for Christ to die for our sins. And now we need to replace Judas. Now, the choosing of Matthias is an interesting thing. I was talking to uh, John this week earlier, and I said, you know, I said, it's amazing. I've got all these commentaries, and they're about split in half. And I mean, good godly people disagree. And I'm like Warren Wiersbe. I'm, you know, I'm I'm amazed that God blesses people I disagree with. But anyway, uh, I mean, good godly people disagree about this. People like G. Campbell Morgan, who is considered the prince of preachers, says that the disciples made a mistake in selecting Matthias that Paul was supposed to be the 12th. But others say, no, Matthias, they followed scripture. They were in a... Now remember, You've got to remember, they're in a prayer environment. They're told to wait. And while waiting, they're praying. They're thinking about what God has said in His Word. Because you remember now, when Peter stands up to preach at Pentecost, he's going to go back and spontaneously begin to bring out scriptures from the Old Testament that he's been thinking about and praying over, about how they related to Christ and the coming of Christ. And so he says, we need to replace Judas. They were called the 11. After this, they're called the twelve. And there are good godly people who say that Matthias shouldn't have been chosen, that Paul should have been the one. But here's the requirement. The requirement was that they had been with Jesus since the beginning. You know, it really helps if you just read the Bible. The requirement was that they had been with Jesus since the beginning and that they were witnesses to the resurrection. Paul was not with Jesus from the beginning, and he only witnessed the resurrected Christ in Acts chapter 9 which is probably several years later. So Paul didn't meet the requirements. And oh, by the way, Paul never thought he should have been one of the 12. Paul never brought it up. Paul said, I, I'm the least of all. In fact, one of the terms that Paul uses for himself in the scriptures, one of the terms, one of the Greek terms that he uses for himself, he says, I am as the product of an abortion. That's how, how Paul was just not consumed with himself. He wasn't worried about the title of being one of the twelve. He was amazed that God had chosen him. And so I believe that Peter made the right decision. For, as I've studied and tried to look at this, that they made the right decisions. And then somebody says, well, oh yeah, but they cast lots. You know, they cast lots. That, that couldn't have been right. Well, again... You've got to read your Bible. Twenty-six times in the Old Testament, there are references to God's people casting lots. Now, why would they cast lots? Listen and think. When you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and you're trying to make a decision about what's best to do, then you go to what the scripture says that you do. And so they said, okay, 26 times they've cast lots to make decisions in the Bible. In fact, let me give you the reference out of Proverbs, the kind of the hook of all of it, the Proverbs 16:33. And listen to what Proverbs 16:33 says. The lot is cast into the lap. Now listen, but it's every decision is from the Lord. <laughs> You know what? Those disciples believe that, okay, here we've got two equally qualified men. How do we decide which one is going? All things being equal, equally qualified men, both there from the beginning with Jesus, both have witnessed the resurrection, both have been with us. How do we decide which two, Lord? We'll cast lots. It's a biblical thing to do. And so they cast lots, and listen to what this verse says again. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This was like a coin toss. It heads or tails? Heads, Matthias, tails, the other guy, you know. Here's what they believed. Now, you really got to believe in sovereignty. God believe this or you say, oh, yeah, well, whatever. I believe that God was so sovereign that God decided which way the lots went. And you'll read people or you'll hear people say, well, we never hear about Matthias. Well, there are a lot of people you never hear about. That doesn't mean that God didn't use them and that doesn't mean that God didn't choose them. What they believed was, we'll we'll cast the lots, and the decision will be the Lord's. Even in the casting of the lots, they put it under the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ that God would, in the casting of lots, choose the one He wanted. Interesting. Verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, and know the hearts of all men... So, Show which one of these two you have chosen. Now, chosen is the same verb used in Acts chapter 1 and verse 2 where it says Jesus chose the apostles. Now, these apostles were chosen for three reasons. They were chosen to plant churches. They didn't know that at the time. They were chosen to plant churches. They were chosen to preach Christ. And they were chosen to protect the church. By the way, You've been chosen. God looked down one day and God sovereignly said, I choose you. It wasn't because of your resume. It wasn't because of your looks. It wasn't because of your education. It wasn't because of your ability, your background, your money, or anything else. God just sovereignly said, I choose you. And He set His heart on you. And He sent His Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. And He sent His Son to die for you. Before you ever knew you were lost, God already sent His Son to die for you. So that when you came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you would find the Lord who had chosen you. Folks, we've been chosen by God. A sovereign act that we could not begin to even understand in our finite minds. You see, I I think I understand a little bit about this because, and understand the context that I say this in, with my children, I didn't choose them. They're the children God gave me. When Terry and I had two children, we had two girls. I didn't choose whether we would have a girl or a boy. or We just had kids. But you see, when I was adopted into the family, I was chosen. You understand? I mean, God sovereignly orchestrated for a single mom to be in a certain town at a certain place to meet a certain doctor who was a best friend of my parents and all of those decisions orchestrated together. And you know, I've sat and thought, you know, I could have ended up in a house with a bunch of drunkards and I could have ended up in, with people that were rebellious and hellious and you know, but God put me in, in a Christian home. He chose that for me. And I had nothing to do with it. And when my parents chose me, they chose me before I was ever born. They said, we'll take care of the hospital bill and we'll take care of the doctor bill and whatever comes out, that's what we'll take. And so they chose me. Folks, listen. Don't walk around on your lip. Don't walk around feeling sorry for yourself. Before you were ever born, God said, I choose you. I choose you. I want you. I love you. I've chosen to send my son to die for you and there's nothing you can do to repay me because it's an unpayable price but all I ask of you is your love in return and that you walk in the power of the spirit that I gave you I chose to give you my spirit I could have left you here to struggle through life on your own just trying your best doing your hardest and making resolutions and making promises but I left you with a power so that you would understand that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. I chose to leave you with a comforter so you wouldn't be comfortless. I chose to leave you with an intercessor. I chose to leave you with an equipper. I chose to leave you with all that you needed to live life to the fullest. They chose the disciples. And I'm grateful. But I want you to know something. Just as significant as Jesus choosing those 12 was Jesus choosing you. Because in your world, you are God's chosen instrument to proclaim that Christ is alive. Let's pray together. Would you just take a moment right now and just thank God that He's chosen you? Would you just wait for just a moment and just think and pray? And just say to the Lord, Lord, I I can't imagine that you would love me that much. I can't imagine that you'd have that kind of compassion and grace. That you would choose me. But you know, God didn't choose us to sit in church. That's part of it, but God chose us to be salt and light. God chose us to share the hope that is within us. God chose us so that we could be witnesses. And so tomorrow when you get up, make sure you choose to put on the full armor of God. To pray to the Father and ask Him to glorify His name through you. To look for opportunities to be a light in a dark world. To say to someone who needs a word about Christ, there's hope. You don't have to live hopeless in this world. You choose this week. To make a difference in some place with somebody. So that they can see God with skin on you. And they can see in you the reality that Jesus Christ does make a difference. Father, we come tonight and we ask you to help us to measure ourselves by your word. Lord, there are many days in my life when I don't live up to what your word says I'm supposed to be because I try to do it in my own energy and strength. Lord, help us to live in light of the second coming and knowing that one day You could come back and it would all be over. Help us to not be escapist, but to be realist that we live in a world that's headed toward judgment. And we should live holy lives in light of the fact that we will one day face you. Father, help us to measure our lives by our prayer lives. And I must admit, Lord, that there are days when my prayer life is, gets a passing grade and some days when it just gets a failing grade. Most of all, Father, let us leave this place tonight knowing that we've been chosen somehow in your sovereign plan and in your scheme for things that you found us some at age 5 some at 15 some at 18 some at 65 that your love patiently waited until in the right time your spirit got a hold of our hearts and convicted us of sin and called us to yourself we can never repay you, we can never thank you enough for what you have done for us through Christ Jesus we honor you, we bless you we magnify your name for you are a good God Been very good to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you. See you Wednesday night.